Chapter Two of The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Grenholm. The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. The Duty of the Intellectuals. Roman One. The French, always keen in classification and apt in nomenclature, have devised a special designation for the men of light and leading, who are indisputably influential in the community, yet who rarely descend into the arena of practical politics. These artists and these philosophers, these men of letters and these men of science, figures of national importance, the French are wont to group together and to call them collectively the intellectuals. Corresponding groups exist in every other country, of course, even if their solidarity and their significance is nowhere else as fully recognized as it is in France. And in every people these intellectuals may be summoned for service to the state. They may have imposed upon them, suddenly, a duty not possible of performance by any other group. When Matthew Arnold paid his first visit to the United States now thirty-five years ago, he prepared an opening lecture specially for us, choosing for it a topic from which he could deduce a moral of immediate and permanent importance to those he was directly addressing. He called his discourse Numbers or The Remnant, and with characteristic courage he warned us that the voice of the people is not to be received everywhere and always as the voice of god he insisted on the duty laid upon the more thoughtful and the better informed to combat any tendency toward a blind yielding to the pressure of the more ignorant majority he dwelt upon the supreme significance of a saving remnant of the most intelligent and of the most upright ready always to resist the momentary unanimity of the mob and capable of holding fast to ancient landmarks no matter how high and how fierce the tide which might seem to be about to batter them down and to sweep them away of course arnold was far too shrewd to be tempted to the opposite extreme and to hold with ibsen that the majority is always in the wrong the persuasive british critic had derived from his study of french life and french literature not a little of the social instinct of the french ever a corrective of the excessive individualism which invalidates the preaching of the stern and egotistic scandinavian dramatist the majority is not always in the wrong and the minority is not always in the right yet the multitude is inclined to have fleeting fits of hysteria and it is then in danger of rushing down a steep place and casting itself into the sea unless it is recalled to its self-possession by the voice of the few who have kept their self-control arnold quoted a pertinent passage from plato describing the plight of a people which is deprived of this element of stability there is but a very small remnant of honest followers of wisdom and they are those who have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession is wisdom and who can fully see moreover the madness of the multitude and that there is no one we may say whose action in public matters is sound and no ally 
for whosoever would help the just what are they to do the same point was made more recently and with a more direct reference to conditions often occurring in a modern democracy by professor george burton adams in his phi beta kappa address at columbia university in the spring of nineteen seventeen for it often happens in the history of democracies that the man who stands in the place of leadership whose duty it is from his position to point out the way upon which the nation ought to enter chooses rather to wait until the general opinion makes itself known when this happens the duty falls with more than usual weight upon those men who can lead the opinion of their communities and in every community like this it is the privilege of the educated man sometimes the man who stands in the place of leadership that is to say the chief magistrate of the republic is truly a leader stalwart in maintaining his own convictions and resolute in resisting the pressure of public opinion when he is convinced that it is being temporarily exerted in the wrong direction in our own history we have seen many instances of this manly courage which risked immediate unpopularity to secure an ultimate result beneficial to the whole community washington refused to yield to the clamor which insisted that we should again go to war with great britain grant vetoed the inflation bill and cleveland withstood the apparently irresistible demand for free silver but there have been other moments in our history when the political leader of the hour has waited until general opinion made itself known and when he has then made himself the mouthpiece and the instrument of the majority even though he did not himself share its opinions of course this is an abdication of the privileges of leadership and it reduces the politician conforming to this practice to the contemptible position of the fabled french demagogue who was warned against following the mob and who explained with frank ingenuousness but i must follow them i am their leader roman two when the foremost officer in the state lacks the vision and the courage to stand up in behalf of the eternal principles endangered for the moment by the misdirected enthusiasm of the majority then as professor adams says the duty of resisting the evil desire of the hours falls with more than usual weight upon those men who have it in them to be truly leaders the men of education of intellect of intelligence we are often told that a democracy like ours has no respect for what must be termed the aristocracy of intellect and that this disrespect is proved by the absence of the members of this mentally superior group from the higher places in the government of the city of the state and of the nation there is no denying that our intellectuals have not often held high positions in the public service but this is not a condition peculiar to the united states in the twentieth century only very rarely in any period and in any place had the foremost intellects of that time and of that country been engaged in the actual work of administration and legislation it is true that goethe did for a few years have a large share in the ruling of little weimar 
it is true also that caesar frederick and napoleon richelieu and cromwell lincoln and bismarck were all of them men of exceptional acumen and imagination but it is not as intellectual chiefs that we remember them statesmen however successful are not likely to be advanced thinkers pioneers of speculative inquiry and they would not have been as successful in their own special field if they had been prone to the speculative inquiries which would have separated them in sympathy from the main body of the plain people whom it was their first duty to guide as president eliot once put it pithily political leaders are very seldom leaders of thought they are generally trying to induce masses of men to act on principles thought out long before and their skill is in the selection of practicable approximations to their ideal their arts are arts of exposition and persuasion their honor comes from fidelity under trying circumstances to familiar principles it is when these political leaders are derelict to duty and stain their hands by lack of fidelity to familiar principles that the intellectual aristocracy the philosophers and the educators the men of letters and the men of science are under obligation to abandon their several studies for the moment and to testify to the permanence of the familiar principles which are attacked by the majority and betrayed by its official leaders it is then their duty to try to resist and to stabilize public opinion as on other occasions and under other circumstances it is their duty to stimulate and to encourage it a country is fortunate when the members of its intellectual aristocracy are conscious of this obligation and alive to the privilege it confers and a country is singularly unfortunate when those who ought to be its chief spirits renounce their chieftainship step down from their lofty isolation and throw in their lot with the mob even when there is no emotional excitement in public affairs the more calmly thinking class has the special function of reacting against the natural national self-glorification which may be useful when kept strictly within bounds but which is dangerous not to say deadly when allowed to run riot every powerful and expanding people has a tendency to exalt itself and to hold itself as indisputably superior to all its rivals sometimes this belief is so ingrained and deep-rooted and long-standing that it feels no need for overt expression it expects to be taken for granted even if unstated and something of this attitude might have been seen toward the end of the nineteenth century both in france and in england sometimes it is a sudden and violent reaction from previous self-depreciation it is the swift result of a new national consciousness and then it is likely to demand vehement proclamation as though it were not quite sure of itself and needed to be convinced by the emphatic assertion of its supremacy and something of this attitude was to be seen in germany in the early years of the twentieth century sometimes it was due not so much to actual achievement as to a sublime belief in the possible accomplishment of the future and something of this attitude was observable in the boastfulness 
not infrequently heard in the united states in the first half of the nineteenth century whatever the cause of this attitude it calls for constant and vigilant self-criticism lowell both in the verses of a fable for critics and in the prose of his essays shot shafts of pungent wit into the inflated figure of brother jonathan distended by self-puffery and matthew arnold was untiring in protest against macaulay's complacent assumption of british supremacy in literature of course every great people possesses certain qualities in greater abundance than any of its rivals and equally of course there are other qualities in which it is more or less deficient arnold again deserved well of his countrymen for the insistence with which he called attention to the french virtues of order and organization harmony and proportion qualities which he urged his more energetically imaginative countrymen to acquire from their hereditary rivals roman three it is however not so much in the hours of calm as in the days of national excitement that the influence of the intellectuals is most useful when a people is about to be swept off its feet by hysteric emotionalism then there is a burden laid upon the honest followers of wisdom and those who have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession is wisdom and who can see moreover the madness of the multitude a country is then fortunate indeed if its intellectuals measure up to their duty and it is sadly bereft if they sink themselves in the mad multitude here in the united states in the dark years after the passage of the fugitive slave law our intellectuals rose to the occasion and were insistent in asserting the iniquity of slavery and the plain right of every man to own himself the influence of the lyrics of whittier and of lowell were direct but it was probably not more potent than the indirect influence of emerson's individualistic philosophy in great britain in the eighteenth century the intellectuals always with the exception of dr johnson were almost united in opposing the folly of the american policy of george the third and in the nineteenth century many of the intellectuals were not in favor of the boer war and the stand that they then took was one factor in bringing about a final settlement so liberal in its terms to the defeated party that it assured the lasting unity of the new south african commonwealth but it is in france that the intellectuals have had occasion to exert themselves most often and most effectively france is fortunate in that she has never lacked men of vision and of courage willing to stand up to be counted even if they had to stand alone in the reign of louis the fifteenth sunk in lust and corruption the frail voltaire cried aloud in the wilderness for justice to callous and never desisted until the hideous wrong was righted in so far as this might be in the second empire of that shabby and shoddy adventurer napoleon the third victor hugo the foremost figure in french literature remained in voluntary exile and never ceased his protest against the usurper and finally in the third republic when the iniquity against dreyfus had been consummated and when public opinion was overwhelming in favor of accepting the verdict of the military court as settling the question absolutely and forever a little group of the intellectuals refused to take part in this conspiracy of silence 
they declined to be satisfied with any solution of the difficulty which was a betrayal of justice it was the famous letter of emile zola i accuse with its vigorous and vehement rhetoric which rang forth as a clarion call to all those who held eternal right superior to temporary expediency nor was zola alone in his attitude anatole france was not less resolute and they were only two out of a host of the intellectuals it is not often that a state is reduced to the pitiable condition depicted by plato when its multitude is mad and when there is no one whose action in public matters is sound the saving remnant may be very small its members may be very few and yet it is able to manifest itself and to make itself heard and to do what it can to counteract the contagion of hysteria which has captured the populace it is not often that a nation is found to be without honest followers of wisdom it is not often but it does happen on occasion and it has happened recently in the second decade of this century we had superabundant evidence that a great people had declined into this pitiable condition despairingly described by plato a people whom we should have held to be almost immune from hysteria a people whom we should have believed to be more than adequately provided with a saving remnant of men who have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession is wisdom roman four if there ever was a moment in the history of a great nation when it had imperative need for a clear-thinking minority stalwart in the faith however few in number that moment arrived in germany in the months which followed the outbreak of the war then if ever was the opportunity for the champions of german culture for the intellectuals of germany for the saving remnant to render to their country a service of incalculable value it was their chance to do for germany in her hour of madness what the intellectual leaders of france had done for their country in the fiery furor aroused by the dreyfus affair but there was not a single one of the high priests of german culture who had the courage to initiate the brave attitude of zola when he flung i accuse in the face of those who were defending the indefensible wrong not only did the intellectuals of germany fail to urge moderation upon their fellow-subjects and to use their influence to modify as far as might be the fierceness of popular feeling stimulated by every possible governmental organization but they allowed themselves to be cajoled or coerced into signing a manifesto of which the sole effect in germany itself was to intensify the spirit of hate it was less than three months after the military party had plunged europe into war that ninety-three philosophers and artists men of letters and men of science sent forth their perfervid protest formally addressed to the civilized world in which they denounced the lies and calumnies with which enemies are endeavoring to stain the honor of germany in her hard struggle for existence a struggle which has been forced upon her we do not know who was the actual writer of this manifesto with its declamatory rhetoric but whoever he may have been his fellow signers made themselves responsible for his series of denial of things which the civilized world knew to be facts very likely it was the result of collaboration of several writers 
uniting their efforts to make their unfounded assertions the more emphatic they borrowed the device of repeating their negative it is not true from the affirmative i accuse of zola's noble letter but where the frenchman had stood up alone in defense of what he believed to be right and in defiance of what seemed to be the overwhelming opinion of his fellow-citizens the german intellectuals enrolled themselves in a company of nearly a hundred to lend the weight of their reputations to a series of assertions which the majority of them ought to have known to be unfounded and false it is not true so they asserted that the germans were guilty of causing the war that they had trespassed in neutral belgium that they had wantonly destroyed louvain that their warfare had violated international law and that it was possible to make a distinction between german militarism and german civilization and they ended their appeal to the civilized world with this demand have faith in us believe that we shall carry on this war to the end as a civilized nation to whom the legacy of a goethe a beethoven and a kant is just as sacred as its own hearths and homes this last paragraph may have been meant either as a prophecy or as a promise and in either case it has lamentably failed of performance what would goethe and beethoven and kant have thought of the sinking of the lusitania of the massacre of the armenians of the deportation of the belgians and of the murder of women and children by bombs dropped from zeppelins upon unfortified towns yet to this protest the signers pledged their names and their honor and these signers bore the most honorable names in germany many of them enjoying a world-wide reputation among them were brandel dorpfeld Eucken, fulda Haeckel, Harnack, Hauptmann, Hunperdink, Ostwald, Rentgen, Sudermann, Wilamowitz Molendorf, and Wundt. Perhaps it is only fair to apportion the blame between the artists and the scientists, and to relieve the former of a little of the odium which the latter cannot escape. The men of letters, the dramatists, the musicians, may perhaps be a little more excusable for surrendering to the emotion of the moment since their art is impossible without abundant feeling artists must possess emotion even if they ought also to be dowered with intelligence but what might be excused in men of letters is inexcusable in men of science who do not need emotion and whose function is to know and to know with absolute precision it is the immitigable duty of the scientist to suppress his personal equation, to see the thing as it really is, and to report on it without exaggeration or diminution, and to assert nothing that he cannot prove. But here we find the chief German scientists, historians, and physicists alike making solemn asseverations about things which they had not scientifically investigated and as to which they had no secure knowledge their desertion dealt a death-blow to the reputation of german science and this reputation was not wounded in the house of its enemies it was assassinated by its friends it may be argued that these german intellectuals made a superb self-sacrifice when they pledged their names and their honor to reckless misstatements and that they merely proffered their reputations as the german soldiers 
were risking their lives if this was the motive of any of them as it may very well have been the sacrifice was in vain when the roman curtius plunged into the fiery gulf he knew in advance that his heroic deed would cause the gaping earth to close but when these german intellectuals flung their names and their honor into the chasm it yawned only the wider here is one obvious explanation of the pitiful plight in which germany found herself a little later without a single friend except her vassal allies and with the civilized world in arms against her her intellectuals failed her in her hour of need they did not stand forth as honest followers of wisdom they allowed themselves to be drafted by the military machine as docilely as the cannon fodder in the ranks of the regiments that invaded belgium and their dereliction from their duty dates further back to the days long before the war when they made no effort singly or collectively to counteract the insidious megalomania which was dominating germany they did not combat this boastfulness they took part in it they led the shouting and the tumult of self-praise they therefore abdicated their leadership and we need not wonder that when this megalomania resulted in war they banded themselves together to intensify the madness of the multitude these german leaders might be intellectual but they were not intelligent they might be professors of psychology but they had little knowledge of human nature they might be poets and playwrights but they were deficient in understanding of the human heart they were convinced and they aided in convincing the populace that the germans were the chosen people that they were the salt of the earth that they were the elect of god that they were supreme in all the arts and in all the sciences holding these convictions there was not one german intellectual who was prepared to play the part of a voltaire or a hugo a lowell or an arnold and to reiterate the unwelcome truths that a people needs to hear from its leaders even in the years of peace they had little self-respecting independence and when war broke in all its horror they were unresistingly dragooned into the sacrifice of their reputations their honor and the honor of german science nineteen seventeen end of chapter two recording by gary grenholm